Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Just this morning as we were praying, this word came to me. Psalms 119, um, you know, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and the whole chapter just sings, it sings the praises of God's word. Like the, 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 it's like a love song to the Bible is what Psalms 119 is. And Psalms 119, it ends by saying this. He says, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. I have strayed like a a lost sheep. And that's kind of an interesting way to end that psalm, because the whole psalm is about how much he loves God's word. And yet at the very end, he confesses, I've strayed like a lost sheep from God's word. And and I guess what the Lord's saying to me through that today is is that, you know, our culture... And the church included has lost her way, especially when it comes to marriage and the family and home. Because we, we've, tried to find, we've tried to make our, up our own rules. We've tried to design the home and fashion the home after our own design. And, and it's failing. And, and, and at, very, at very least, it looks awkward. I feel like a, a lot of us, we look like those duck boats. You know, duck boats are like, it's not a car, it's not a boat, it's a duck boat. But it's like an ugly car in an ugly boat. And, it, and it's not really a good boat and it's not really a good car. You ever seen those? Like they're, they're trying to be these two things at the same time and it doesn't really just be one or the other. And I feel like sometimes the church, like we've been given the word of God and, and we, take, we, we think, oh, well, I'm in the world. I want to be relevant to the culture. I want to, everybody to like me. Oh, but I love the Bible. The Bible's so good. And we're trying to play, but we just look ugly. It doesn't work. We're awkward. It doesn't fit. And, and when it comes to the home, when it comes to the family, I think we need to repent. We need to say, look at God, we have strayed from your design for the home. We have strayed. And you know, I, we don't owe the world an explanation for why we do what we do, but we do owe them an invitation. And I, I want to be able to say to the world, hey, look, I know, I know that you, I know you think I'm a, a bigot. I, I know you think that I'm a hater. I know you think that I'm all these things because I happen to believe that God's design is the right way for the home. But look, I don't have to explain myself to you, but why don't I just invite you in? Why don't you come and see my life, see my marriage, see my home? Watch me. See it. Let me show you. This really is the better way. Let me show you the design of God, the way that he created us to be. And we're going to walk it by his word. We need his word. And, be, and because of that, my friends, we're, we're going to be um, taking maybe a slightly stronger, a different approach, if you will, in the next couple of months. So in May, we're going to uh, talk about the home, God's design for the home. And then June, July, we're going to dive into the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is such a great book in the Bible because the book of Hebrews like has all these Old Testament quotes in it. It's in the New Testament, but it has all these Old Testament quotes. So if you really want to get to see the Bible, the book of Hebrews is a great book because you got to cover the whole thing. And so that's where we're going. And then in September, we're going to dive into the book of Leviticus. 
And, uh, and you're going to be like, what, 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 what? And so by the time we're done, you're going to love it. And part of the reason why we're doing this is this. We've got to come back to the Word. E- enough with the hot topics. E- enough with trying to be relevant. Enough with like, trying to explain myself to the world. Look, at, I, I follow Jesus Christ. I stand on the Word of God. And that's it. Right? And look at, do I do it perfectly? No. Do I do it perfectly? No. And where I don't do it perfectly, I invite you to pin me to the wall. And I want to be humble enough to admit, yeah, the Bible says this, and I didn't do it. You're right, I'll do it. But I won't do it because you told me to do it. I want to do it because the Scripture tells me to do it. And I won't do it to try to make you feel better or try to somehow make you my friend. I'll do it because Scripture tells me to do it. I'm obligated to this first. So when we come to the home, <laughs> whew, okay, so that's not even the sermon. Listen, <laughs> buckle up, okay. Um, yes, so let's, uh, let's start. Proverbs 24, we're going to use this Scripture verse as the foundation for our whole thing this month. And so every Sunday we'll start with this verse. Um, unless it turns out like today and there's something else. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4, it says this. Could you say it with me? By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it's established. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasure. Look at that. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. They go together. Wisdom is not the same as being smart. Wisdom is the ability to know the right thing to do and do the right thing. That's wisdom. Wisdom is not about your IQ. You can have a low IQ and be very wise. It's not about your education. You can be uneducated and be very wise. Wisdom is simply about knowing the right thing and then doing the right thing. And how many of you know doing the right thing is often very difficult? Yet it's the wise thing. Wisdom goes along with understanding. Understanding in the Bible is always the ability to to be able to discern the nuances of a situation. You know, there's there's the black and white obvious, and then there's the nuances. There's the gray sometimes. You know how that is in life. And we need understanding for that. That's understanding. Um, Should I go out on Friday night? Well, I don't know. Have you been out every other night this week? It takes understanding to see the nuance in that and to make the wise decision. Do you see how they go together? And then wisdom and understanding really aren't much without knowledge. You need knowledge for those first two to happen because knowledge is is the ability to take good notes, to learn from my mistakes, to learn from your mistakes, to, to study and read and learn from others' mistakes, you know, to take good notes and then It takes wisdom to apply it, understanding to see how it fits in with the nuances in life. So you see how wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are needed to build a good house. And Proverbs is not just talking about a house. The word here in the Hebrew is actually household. So it's home. It's building your home. Wisdom, you know, any fool can take a few nails and slap a board together and 
called a house. You know, it takes wisdom, it takes understanding, it takes knowledge to build a home, the kind of environment where the people in it are safe to learn and to grow and to mature as people of God. And as we see this month, the home is by God's design. It's God's design. It's the place where people are formed or shaped for better or worse sometimes. Some of our homes, and I think if we were all just, let's just be honest, every one of us comes from a dysfunctional home. I mean, there's, there's nobody that comes from a perfect home. Every one of us has some kind of dysfunction in our homes. And so, so we're not at all pretending like I got, you know, the perfect home. It's, <laughs> but, but yet you understand that that dysfunction causes damage. And that, and that God's design for us is that we build a home in his plan, and as we do that, the closer we reach his ideal for the home, the less damage gets done to the individuals who are in the home. God's design is for the home to be that place, man, where, where people can grow and learn and thrive. And can I just say one of the signs that of how far we've strayed um, from God's ideal is, I, can I just be honest with you, I'm nervous. And, and I'm approaching this morning and I'm approaching this month with a little bit of fear and trepidation. Because... You know, I risk criticism. I, I risk criticism by standing here and declaring that God's design for the home, that it begins with a man and a woman in covenant relationship together, raising children to follow Jesus and training them to become healthy and mature, emotionally solid, productive adults who repeat the process in their own homes in the next generation. That's a radical statement, isn't it, in our day? I, I, risk, I risk being called, I hate to say, I risk being called racist because I believe in a nuclear family. Our culture saying that. I, I risk being called a bigot because I happen to believe that homosexual behavior is a sin. I risk being called a male chauvinist because I believe that a man is commissioned by God to be the head of his home. See, I mean, and at the very least, I risk being accused of being a prude because I happen to believe that my wife is the only woman I'm supposed to ever have sex with. See how outdated that is? And so, so I ask you to pray for me. Because frankly, it's not your judgment that scares me, although it does sort of scare me. But more greatly, <laughs> there's another one to whom we must give account. And, and I feel like I, that, that scares me as well. And I feel like more and more and more with as far as the culture strays from the ideal of God and as much as the church has jumped into bed with the culture, and she has in so many ways, that as we do, that now that places those who stand on biblical ideals in even more of a tense spot because here's the people that I love and here's the God that I worship. And I, I find myself where the Apostle Paul is. Well... I've got to choose to please God. 
And so we stand there. And like I said earlier, I don't believe that I owe the world an explanation for why I do what I do. Like, I don't think it's the church's job to try to be relevant to the world. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, you're not supposed to fit in. That's, you're, you're weird, man. Like, just get over it. That's, that's the idea. You know, I mean, the Bible calls us a peculiar people, like we are. You're salt, you're light, you're supposed to stand out. That's the concept. You're not supposed to blend in. You see that, right? So, of course. And you're, in a way, you're the anchor in culture. And, you know, culture's gonna, the, the, it's gonna tug the tide of cultures. Culture's gonna tug against the anchor, and the anchor's gonna feel that. And if the anchor just gives way, where does the rest of the world go? See, so it's not really a, a great, a fun job to be the anchor, but it's a necessary job, you know. So I don't owe the world an explanation, but I do, I believe, I owe them an invitation. And I happen to believe that as we stand on God's word and we develop and build our home, that, that like that right there becomes an invitation to the world that says, hey, look, come, 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 let me show you how God intended for this to be. And, and, you know, Peter, Peter advised people, and I think it's 1 Peter or 2 Peter, I can't remember, it's not in the notes, but Peter says, uh, P- Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they would see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's Peter. And that's something. So I'm not stopping their criticism. They're going to criticize Haters are going to hate. That's just how it works, right? But, but so, so I can't stop that. But live such good lives, Peter says, that even though they do criticize, there comes a point where they have to say, yeah, I see what you were saying there. That was the better way. And that's what Peter's challenging us to do. So please pray that the meditation of my heart the words of my mouth might be pleasing to the Lord. So where do we start? Okay. So just a warning. This is going to go long today. So just let you know. So before God created any other institution, before God created any, before God created the government, before God created um, even the family, before God created, um, before God created the church. God created one institution, marriage. He created marriage first because marriage is the most basic building block to a healthy society. And and, and if you're single, please don't check out on me right now because I'm about to argue that healthy marriage actually makes healthy singles. Psalm 68, verse 6, it says this. It says that God sets the lonely in families. And marriage is the foundation of healthy families. And healthy families are founded on healthy marriage, which makes a safe environment for everyone to thrive, including those who are single. So if you're single, I I just want to beg of you, please don't check out, but rather pray for those who are married. Because we got a, a really tough job. And uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, is where we're going to be today. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 2, I know I didn't warn you ahead of time, but it's literally page 2 in my Bible, so it's not that hard to find. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 18. And it says this, The Lord God said, 
It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Notice two things right off the bat as we look at this. Two things. First of all, God makes all the whole world, everything in creation, and it's all good. And then God looks at Adam, and he says, it's not good. For Adam to be alone. That's, that's not good. Everything else is good, but him being alone is not good. Do you, do you see the significance of that? The fish are good, the stars are good, the cows are good, the everything's good. But this one thing, not good. Man being alone. In other words, God created us for intimacy. He designed us, built us for community. It's not good for man to be alone. This is why single people desire to find a mate. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, it says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Your desire to find a mate is a good thing. It's a blessed thing. There's nothing wrong with you in desiring a mate. Like, that is good. It's normal. It's the way God wired you. It's part of your DNA. See? The second thing we have to see here is this. Adam had a fulfilling job. I mean, you, you look at that. God brings all the animals to Adam, and he says, here, you name them. What, what do you want to name it? And so God partners with Adam in the creation process, that is stunning. Why would the God of the universe want to partner with the likes of us? Yet he does. He partners with Adam. Isn't that something? Can you see that? Hey, Adam, what do you want to name it? Hippopotamus. <laughs> well, it's a mouthful, but if you say so, okay, great, done. It's over. I mean, so Adam has this fulfilling job of, of just partnering with God in the creation process. So now this right here, do you see what sets up, what this is setting up? This sets up the plot line from every Hallmark movie. Yes. <laughs> we have gorgeous guy who's living a very satisfied, successful career. But something is missing. What could it be? He's missing love. That's what he's missing. And he goes into the bookstore. 
down on the corner. And he's satisfied. He's got a good job, a great career, upwardly mobile. I mean, his partner is God, right? He's doing pretty well. And yet, there's no women in the bookstore because there's no women, see. And here's Adam. He's all, cue the music. I think that Hallmark stole the plot line from Genesis chapter 2. It's beautiful. And then we find in here three foundational principles for then marriage, healthy marriage. How does God design marriage? And as we look at these three things, we need to give John Piper the credit. I need to just say that, uh, credit him. John Piper is a pastor from Minnesota, and he's a Christian author. He's written a bunch of really good books. And so I really like uh, a lot of the stuff he writes. And so this comes from him. Um, but I can't tell you the name of the book because I can't remember it. But it was a book written by him on marriage, so narrows it down a little bit. So these three things come from him. The first one is this. Marriage is God's idea and God's design. Verse 20. Verse 20 says that God sees that Adam is alone, and he notices that, that there's no suitable helper for Adam. There's no suitable helper. Now, listen, ladies. When the Bible calls you a suitable helper, it is not saying it like you're his little helper. That's not how the Bible is saying it, okay? Actually, you being a suitable helper is a big deal. Um, first of all, the word is not just helper. The word is suitable helper. And in Hebrew, the word the, which the language Genesis is written in originally, the Hebrew word that's translated suitable helper, it means to correspond with. Literally, to correspond with. So Adam is alone. You see this. Adam's alone. God doesn't give him a golden retriever and say, hey, here, man's best friend. going to be a great time. See, as, as nice as Lassie is, Lassie does not correspond with Adam. Adam needed a suitable helper. See, so there's nothing like Adam in all of creation, nothing else like him. And so God created one to correspond with Adam, and she corresponds with him by being strong where he's weak. She corresponds with him by, by emotionally, she has feminine qualities, and he has masculine qualities. Physically, she corresponds with him. Their, their genitalia match. Their, their reproductive organs, they complement one another. They correspond with one another. Spiritually, she corresponds with him in such that Adam is made in the image of God. Eve is also made in the image of God. They're the only two creatures in all of creation that are made in the image of God. And so now she corresponds with Adam spiritually because she's the only other one who can walk with Adam with God. They correspond. See, this is interesting to me because Adam at this point, had not sinned. Adam was perfect. And Adam had a perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with God. And yet, 
it was not good. See? In other words, Adam had needs. God created Adam with needs that God could not meet. God created Adam with needs, and he says, Adam, you're alone. Well, but I have you, God. No, but you're alone. You see, this idea of just you and God against the world, that's a false concept. You weren't created for that. It's not good for man to be alone. Adam needed a suitable helper, and God was not that suitable helper. Think through that. Now, add to that something else to consider. Okay, God had to have done this on purpose. You can't tell me that God forgot to make Adam a woman. But yet sometimes we read this, and that's kind of how we read it. As though almost like God finishes everything, you know, it's all great. And then God goes, I knew I'm forgetting something. What is that? Oh, Adam's alone. I need to make him a good woman. That's what I got to do. Like that's, that is not, you can't tell me that after God created all the rest of creation, male and female, and, and even in the plant world, he creates male and female, of course. You can't tell me that somehow he, you know, he comes to making man and then forgets to make female. Like, that's not how that played out. So what's happening? This is on purpose. This is done for emphasis. That's what this is done for. This is done so that you and I make no mistake how God intends for it to be done. First, you got to see how vitally important women are in this world. Girls, you're not secondary, not at all. How vitally important women are in this world. Think about it. Adam was the, not really the apex of creation. I mean, God makes the the seas and the land and the light and the dark and the mountains and the fish and the animals and the you know he's, there's this kind of building in creation, and then he reaches the crowning achievement in creation and it's man. But he's not done there, is he? Woman. Really, the making of Eve is the apex of creation. Like he, when he made Adam, he hadn't finished yet. Do you, you see how insignificant that is? See? And Adam is made from dirt. In fact, the name Adam, it means ground. You know that? And Eve is made from Adam. So my theory is this, that God purposefully delayed the making of Eve in order to strongly emphasize that it is not good for man to be alone. In the same way, it's not good for woman to be alone. We literally need one another. We are literally incomplete without the other. This is why a homosexual relationship is ultimately inferior to a heterosexual relationship, because it is not good for man to be alone. Not good for woman to be alone. Men need women. Women need men. We correspond with one another in God's plan. It's also important, ladies, to understand that the word helper 
is used in the Bible to describe the Holy Spirit's role in the world. I don't have time to do a deep dive into this this morning, but in marriage, the husband is a picture of Christ. So the husband is the Christ figure, but the wife is the picture of the Holy Spirit. And, and as the Christ, as Christ died for the church, see, that's what the Bible tells us. He, Jesus laid his life down for the church. The husband is called to lay his life down for his wife, to serve his family in that way, and his wife. The Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit comes alongside of the church, and he strengthens the church, and he helps the church with his gifts and his guidance, so the wife is called to come alongside of, compliment, strengthen her husband. It's no small task, ladies, to be called a suitable helper. You have been given a difficult job, women. Think about it how hard it was for Jesus to die for the church. We think, oh, that's awesome. I mean, whoo. Yes, that happened one day 2,000 years ago, and I'm not at all minimizing it. The Holy Spirit has been walking with the church for the last 2,000 years every single day. Can you, and just imagine how much the church has grieved the Spirit in the last two millennia. See, I, I don't know, I, listen, I'm, man, I don't know who has the harder job. The, the husband who has to represent Christ or the wife who represents the Holy Spirit. You both got a tough job. And you see, and this actually is what brings grace for one another in a Christian marriage. Look, as a husband, I don't want to make my wife's job any harder than it already is. I don't want to bring grief to my wife. But you see, as, as the wife recognizing that I represent Christ and I'm called to lay down my life and die for her, she has grace for me in that role. She doesn't want to make it any harder for me to lay down my life and serve and give everything I have for her. You see, so we have grace for one another. God has called us to an impossibly high ethic. This is why we need his strength to do it. So that's point number one. Marriage is God's idea. Whew. Could there be anything greater than to represent God in this way to the world? The second point is this, that God gave away the first bride. Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, the Lord God made a woman, and then what did he do? He brought her. Do you see how sweet that picture is? God gave away the first bride. God is the first father of the bride. He gave away his little girl to Adam. See? My wife is God's girl first. I married the king's daughter. She is royalty. She is arist aristocratic blood runs through her veins. She is no ordinary princess. She is God's princess. Husbands, do we cherish our bride as the king's daughter. I dare not displease the king by how I treat his princess. God gave her to me. Why did God give her to me? Well, it's not good for you to be alone, bro. That's why he gave her to you, because you're no good by yourself. <laughs> See? Do I cherish her for that? 
And I know some guys are like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, I wish I was alone. You know, she does this and she does that and blah, blah, blah. You don't know what I married. And no, bro, trust me, you're a lot better off because of her. Trust me. And God made her, it says, from the man's rib. This is important. She comes from my side. She doesn't come from my feet. She's not beneath me. She doesn't come from my head. She's not above me. She comes from my rib. She's my equal. So can I get personal for a moment? The wake-up call in our marriage was when I realized who I married. And I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it took me a good 25 years to figure that out. I married the king's daughter. And I can tell you that revelation changes how I cherish her as a husband. Um, several weeks ago, she had a bad bout with vertigo. And um, like it lasted a whole week and it was really bad. And she was in bed the whole time. And she was so sick and she was in pain. And there was times she was even crying. And it was horrible. And can I just tell you, I felt helpless. Guys, you with me? You know how that feels, right? Helpless. Like, I would have done anything to take it away. <laughs> I'm like, can I get you a Tylenol? Can I get you water? How about some tea? I'll make you tea. Can I get you? You know, I, may, I went to Walgreens. I heard, let's try a anti-nausea medicine. Let's go with Dramamine. Let's do that. Bonine. Get them both. We'll take them all. You know, whatever it takes. I fired up the diffuser. We had, you know, essential oils going. You know, we were... We were minty fresh, man, because that's supposed to be good for your stomach and nausea. So we got the oil diffuser going in the house. And, you know, I don't know that it helped, but it smelled good. And so, you know, we're having a good time and all the whole time. And I'm just praying, oh, Lord, please, please heal my wife. Here's my big pastoral prayer. Heal her, make her better, make her better, make her better. God, now, God, now, God, now. That's my prayer. And it's like, because you know how that goes. Oh, man, this... You could, that's why it didn't, you know, he didn't do King James. Lord, thou mustest. I don't know what you do. I'm trying everything to make her feel better. And finally, after seven days, you know, the Lord answered our prayer. Thank the Lord. And she was better. But as I look back on that, can I be honest with you? I haven't always been that way. Early on in our marriage... I was not very understanding or sympathetic when she was sick. And early on in our marriage, I would have said things that would be unkind. And I would have left her to battle it alone. And you'd say, well, yeah, you're older now, so that's why you've changed. And no, I don't believe it's about age. I believe that it's about a work of God in my own heart to bring me to this conclusion that I married the king's daughter and she's worthy. That makes her worthy of my attention. It makes her worthy of my best. And I haven't always felt that way. But I see now that she's his girl first. And the way that I treat her must reflect that belief. And um, God gave Eve to Adam. And to every other husband, the Bible says that your wife, check this out, guys. I don't have it on the screen. Proverbs 19, 14. Proverbs 19, 14. It says that, guys, your wife is part of your inheritance from the Lord. Ain't that cool? 
I got, I got part of my inheritance from God early on the day I married my wife. Come on, that's good. I got a good inheritance. She's God's gift to me. God gave away the first bride, and God continues to give away every other bride. And that comes to the third point, and that's this. And God makes the marriage union. He makes it. It's not something that we make. You have a, a guy and a girl, and they stand there, and they say, I do. And we say, oh, they got married. But actually, God is the one who makes the marriage union. Here's what the Bible says. Verse 24 says, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. You notice there's they, they become united, and then they become one flesh. That's a two-step process. And so man and woman stand at the altar, I do, I do, and then God steps in and the two become one flesh. God's design for marriage is that a man unites with a woman and then he makes them one flesh. Now this seems super radical, I know, to us nowadays in our culture, but you understand it's always been radical. It's always the concept that God would intervene in our life and take these two people and make them one, inseparable. It's like, well, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews, he, in Ephesians, he called it a mystery. Ooh, it's a mystery. And Paul was a single guy, so I don't think he really ever got it. You know, it's like, wow, that's a mystery. And then, and then, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, verses 5 to 10, Jesus gave this teaching on marriage. And he actually quotes this, and he says in Matthew 19, verse 6, Jesus says, so they are, no, look at this, they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That's Matthew 19, verse 6. Jesus said that. No longer two, but one flesh. So check this out. The one flesh union is a miracle of God. Listen, it's not only a reference to sexual intimacy, although that is certainly a, a, a picture of what's going on, okay? It is. It's a picture, but it's actually not what the Bible's saying here. It's, it's a, something's much more profound is happening. It's, there's an intertwining of souls. There's two persons. There's two spirits. God's doing a miracle, and he's taking these, these two me's, and he's making them into one we, and, and there's no way, Jesus says, to separate my wife and me without doing irreparable damage because we're one. See, this is why, as sweet as it is, um, like when a couple is married for a whole lifetime, 60, 65 years, and then one of them dies. Have you ever noticed this? The other one seems to die shortly thereafter. Right? It's common. Why? The two are one. They're, they're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. I know what happened to Karis' grandparents. They were married almost 70 years, and they died within three months of each other. I remember 12 years ago when Karis' mom passed away, and her dad was a lost puppy. I mean, you know, he functioned, he got along just fine, right? But he was never the same. Never the same after mom passed. Why? The two had become one. 
You can't, you can't rip them apart and separate them without some kind of damage. Jesus says that, that what God has put together, don't let any man tear apart, you see? Um, I'm just saying, I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying that marriage is the greatest risk that you'll ever take. It's like the biggest gamble of your life. You're standing before God and you're asking him to unite you with another imperfect human being. Think about what you're asking God to do. See, God, make these two imperfect people the same person. Unite us together. And, and you understand that that person has the potential to completely ruin you. And that person also has the potential to bless you beyond measure. Both are, both are possible in marriage, see? But you understand that they're taking the same risk. A wake-up call in marriage is when I realize how much grace is required to live with me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> wow! Karis has a lot of grace. A lot of grace, you know? I know, like you, some of you ladies, oh, but my husband's such a slob. You don't know it. Hey, sister, you're no picnic either, sweetie. <laughs> Love you, okay? But I'm just telling you, man, we, it's, wow, we, we impact one another. And I'm just saying marriage is the biggest risk you'll, you'll ever take. Like the secret of marriage, the secret, ready? The secret of marriage is dying to yourself. That's it. That's what you're called to do in marriage. It's a lifelong process of dying to myself so that the two become one. Does this not bring us to some sort of react to the same kind of reaction that the disciples had? You know, the disciples, they they're they're hearing Jesus talk about the one flesh union, and their response is: if this is the case between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. It's better. Wow, this is hard. You're calling us to something hard. Yes, he is. He's calling us to die to ourselves. So what do we do? How do we respond today? Let me just uh, try to wrap this up quick. Genesis 2.25. It almost seems weird, like it's an extra detail. And we read it a moment ago. After laying out this intense vision for marriage, verse 25 just seems like a really weird detail and like you don't even need it. It tells us this. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Like talking about nudity in church feels a little awkward. I get it, right? You think, okay, I get it. You didn't have Target back then. Okay, so why do we need to know that Adam's running commando through the grass? Like, we don't need to know that. Like, why does it tell us this, right? Well, looking past the awkwardness of this, looking past the awkwardness of this, there's one big word that stands out. And, and that is, go back to verse 18. We start there. Adam, it's not good for him to be alone. Verse 25 the husband and his wife are both naked and they feel no shame. There's a crescendo to this teaching, and that's this. Um, God accomplished his goal. God took a man who was alone, alone, and he fixed the problem of loneliness. He gave him a perfect companion, and they became intimate. The two became one. They were naked had no shame, nothing to hide, 
nothing to hide, complete freedom, openness with one another. There's two ways to explain this. One is sort of silly, but I think you got to mention it. And that is perhaps the reason why they were naked and had no shame is because Adam and Eve possessed the only two human bodies in all of history who were handcrafted by God. It's safe to conclude they had the only two perfect bodies ever. Would you not agree? So what's there to be ashamed of? Hey, right? (laughs) But I don't think that's really what it's telling us. The second one is this. They had a perfect covenant with one another and with God. At this point, they had no sin. They had nothing to be ashamed of. They had nothing to hide, no skeletons, nothing between them, complete openness, total freedom. I've heard that intimacy, you know, it it really means into me see, into me see, intimacy. And in that, they experienced perfect unity, harmony, oneness. They could give themselves to one another without any reservation, hold nothing back. I'm all yours. You're all mine. We're all in. But if you have your Bible still open, go to chapter 3. You find where Adam and Eve sinned. They turned against God. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 tells us the very first thing that happened when they did that. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Isn't that something? Rather than protect one another, they covered themselves. Isn't that interesting? Now covering themselves, they can no longer trust one another with their nakedness. I can't trust you. I mean, if you broke your promise to God, what are you going to do to me? See, I must cover and protect myself. I must hide from you. Later on, God finds them in the garden hiding. And when God confronts them, what do they do? They throw each other under the bus. See, now we have every reason to hide from each other. Being naked, being vulnerable, being truly intimate, too risky. I can't trust you with my nakedness. What if you judge me? What if, what, if, what if you hate me? What if you despise me? What if you unfriend me? See, what if you see something you don't like? And now we have many married couples who live married but alone. It's not good for man to be alone. So we get married and we think that'll fix it but we forget about the sin problem and we still find ourselves alone, married and alone. We don't know how to experience this this naked and unashamed beauty of genuine intimacy. Dr. Philip Zimbardo, he says this from Stanford University, he wrote in Psychology Today magazine, he says, I know of no more potent killer than isolation. There's no more destructive influence on physical and mental health than isolation. The devil's strategy is to trivialize human existence and to isolate us from one another. Division is always the devil's agenda, always his agenda. Why? Because isolation leads to elimination. Just how it works. Isolation leads to elimination. Single people feel lonely. And your desire for a mate is good. Many married people are also lonely, tragically, because simply getting married doesn't solve that 
need. See, this is why Jesus needs to be at the foundation. He's got to be at the core of us. Because it's only when I find forgiveness in Christ that then I can let shame go. And then I can actually be free enough to give myself to another human being, to, to trust her and for her to trust me. See, the solution, what's the solution to loneliness in marriage? So I'll tell you what the solution's not. It's not for you to go home and tell your spouse how lonely they make you feel. No, listen, you are the only legitimate source for intimacy that your spouse has. You might want to write that down because that's a really big one. You are the only legitimate source for intimacy that your spouse has. I mean, think about it. Do I really want my spouse to find intimacy in some other relationship? Like, do I really want my wife to find some other guy? You know, like, have you ever heard a guy say that? Oh, yeah, you know, my marriage is really bad, but my wife found this guy, and he's just the best. I mean, they hang out all the time, and, you know, they just have all these deep talks, and they're so get, getting so close. I'm so happy for her. I really am. She, that's really great. I'm glad she found that intimacy over there. Like, no, I would never say that. That'd be horrible. Well, then I need to provide that for her. See, I'm the only legitimate source for that in her life, see? I need to create the safe space for her to be authentic so that, as the Bible says, we can be naked and unashamed. So how do I do this? Quick, focus on, focus on communing, not controlling. Hey, does she do things I don't like? Yep. Do I do things she doesn't like? Yep. So let's not focus on those. It's not my job to change her. It's not her job to change me. Um, let's just enjoy each other. A lot of times our enjoyment of one another, it gets undermined because I'm so busy criticizing. So commune, don't control. See one another through Christ's wounds, not my own wounds. See, our wounds tend to become filters, don't they? We, we all have these, we've all been hurt and, and we've all done hurting and that's, that's happened. We all have wounds. My, my wife and I are both wounded. But Jesus died for her. He died for me. And we need to see one another through those, through his wounds, not our wounds, his wounds. See, and there's something in her that he loves deeply. What is that? I want to find that. Do you see? I see her through his wounds. And then third, I listen, just listen to each other. You know, the word heart is the word here with the cross at the end. Here through the cross. Look, at we all say things that don't make sense. We all say things that are unkind. We all say things that don't come out the right way. So listen not to the words, but to the heart. I need to hear her through the cross. The cross says that she's valuable enough to die for. So she's valuable enough for me to listen to and seek to understand. And if she says something I don't understand... I don't jump all over it and criticize it and get offended and get angry. I ask for clarification. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.